This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. Thank you for staying. I know this is, um, this is difficult for everyone. I've been out at the airport uh, since 3.30 back home out again, uh, so it's just kind of a wild, a wild evening. My name is Dale Soden. I'm a professor of history here, the uh, director of the Weyerhaeuser Center, which is the formal host of the evening tonight. So we're really glad that you're here, and I won't take any more time other than just to uh, welcome you. And I want to introduce my colleague, Aaron Putsky. So this is the third year in a row that we've done something related to health science uh, from, a, from an ethical standpoint, a healthcare standpoint. Uh, uh, and again, we're just glad to have this opportunity to uh, present Dr. Talbot and Aaron will introduce uh, David. So thank you. Thanks, Dale. Dale Soden, thank you so much for hanging out. Thank you, those who came back. Double extra credit for those people. Appreciate that very much. And maybe donuts tomorrow morning, if we can actually get back to work. Um, I do want to welcome you all to what has become uh, an annual thing. So this is our third annual bioethics symposium. And I'm really, really grateful for the support we get from the university, but also through the, the Weyerhaeuser Center for Faith and Learning and for Dale for all his uh, support. So I just wanted to thank him for that. Uh, we are not as grateful to the weather for doing what it did to us this evening, but we are extremely grateful that we are sitting here and on the verge of hearing this great talk. You know, the opioid problem in the U.S. Uh, has reached epic proportions, and if you're even half aware of what's in the media these days, it has touched you in various ways. And as I've talked to people across campus and, and even here tonight, some have told me stories about how it has touched their lives uh, in different ways. So this is becoming more and more personal to so many of us um, these days. And so it will affect us more down the road, especially as you guys progress in your college career and you graduate and you get out there. Uh, it's going to be more in your face as we go forward. So we're very excited to have Dr. David Taubin here this evening, uh, who is an expert on opioid use and pain management and is a recognized leader uh, in his efforts to abate this epidemic as it's emerged. Dr. Taubin is jointly appointed at the University of Washington in the departments of medicine and anesthesia and pain medicine, uh, where he's also the Hughes M. and Catherine G. Blake Endowed Professor. Dr. Taubin is also the UW Director of uh, Medical Student and Resident Education in Pain Medicine and the medical director of UW Telepain. So he's very in these, in these programs. Importantly, he's a founding member of the State of Washington Agency Medical Directors Panel of Medical Experts, developing opioid prescription guidelines for the state, and a regular clinical and content expert for regulatory and legislative bodies involved in public policy regarding pain medicine practice and standards. He speaks as a clinical expert in medical management of chronic pain, especially as it applies to primary care practices. Dr. Taubin served as an expert for several U.S. Center Centers for Disease Control clinical outreach programs and policy reviews, advising primary care providers on how to prescribe opioids for chronic non-cancer pain. He has advocated publicly to Congress in regulation of opioid abuse. He stated at one point that opiates clearly have been overprescribed since the late 1990s. So he weighs in on action by the U.S. Senate to consider several measures 
to reduce the national epidemic of opioid abuse. As a side note, in his free time, Dr. Taubman continues his lifelong interest in philosophy, literature, and history. He has always enjoyed the visual and performing arts, including and also reading and skiing. He's devoted to listening to and caring for people. He believes family, friendships, and community still matter most. He would fit in great at the Whitworth community. What an ambassador for the liberal arts. So please welcome Dr. David Taubman. Yeah, so uh, it's great to be here. I've actually always wanted to visit Whitworth, and I got the invitation uh, months ago. And of course, we picked the worst weather ever in Seattle. Uh, uh, and in fact, uh, all my friends and family said I was a fool to come, but I'm not at all. I'm so glad that, I, that I'm here right now. And thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, I wish my mother, uh, may she rest in peace, were here to hear those kind words because uh, she put a lot of effort in uh, my growing up. Uh, so I'm going to speak about opiate crisis in America. Uh, and I'm going to talk about a couple of broad concepts. I've got about an hour. I'm going to try to move quick. I will hang around afterwards because I'm famous for having way too much content to deliver in too short an interval. Uh, but I'll be talking about this word called syndemic. So syndemic means a synchronous epidemic. And I, I, my hypothesis is that having been involved in learning about pain, uh, we have been doing poor pain care ever since we figured out how to do it right. Uh, and that's an ethical, political, and a policy decision that has led us to that perspective. Uh, so we have a, an epidemic of poor pain care, and that's come upon an epidemic of addiction in this country uh, that has combined into a, a colossus. So I'll try to define that and make that clear, and if we have time towards the end uh, to be able to uh, explore that further. Uh, I'm going to, uh, hopefully at the end of this, you'll be able to defend public health policy measures, which are under great rebuke right now for telling people how to prescribe and what to do and uh, all sorts of stories about bad outcomes, and many of them are indeed bad, uh, but be able to understand the policy issues that are revolved in reducing opioid overdose deaths. Uh, and then uh, the ethical issues about what do we do with patients who we have put on opioids with good intentions and are now stuck on them, and in the swing of this pendulum, how they're going to be knocked off uh, their entire life uh, for some of these folks. So if I can advance this, there we go. So a quick word about uh, opioids. Uh, we humans have had a long uh, career. Uh, Hugel was the Sumerian term uh, for the joy plant because it does cause euphoria, and it was recognized as such. Uh, uh, it uh, became a, an epidemic in this country first following the Civil War, speaking to our historians in the group, when the syringe had been introduced in Europe as a way of injecting this rather than having to be smoked. Because it's, if you take it directly into your gut in, in that form, it didn't produce the kind of immediate effect. Uh, and during the Civil War, with the awful casualties uh, amongst the uh, combatants, uh, they were given injections, and many, many came back. That was the first opiate epidemic of addiction in this country, uh, returning from the, the Civil War. Uh, and uh, in fact, it wasn't even regulated in the United States. It could be purchased over the counter. You could see Ms. Winslow's soothing syrup. Uh, that was for children, infants who were teething uh, for tooth pain. Uh, and you can see the bottle of heroin there. 
that was, again, over the counter uh, by Bayer, the current aspirin manufacturer. But this was just widely used. And it wasn't until uh, the Harrison Act in 1914 when there was any regulation at all about the administration of drugs that could potentially put uh, individuals at risk. That was about the era when modern medicine began to organize itself in terms of a formal curriculum as well. Uh, so from antiquity uh, to the internet, this I pulled up about six or eight months ago. It's still the same. You basically can shop for it right off the internet. Uh, the current hot ticket items are Kratom. Uh, you may have heard of it. Uh, it is extraordinarily dangerous. Uh, it is a potency that exceeds morphine by an order of 20 times its weight. Uh, but you can buy that in all sorts of shops around uh, rural America. And actually, there's a couple of shops right in near the University of Washington. Uh, so you can get Kratom, and you can get it online also. And you can get fentanyl, which is a dangerous drug uh, that should be administered only in a hospital setting. Uh, and that's also now easy to synthesize and has become uh, part of the internet issues that we're facing. So what are opioids? Since uh, not all of you, who's studying kind of biology at this moment? Ah, lots of folks here. All right. So I'm going to talk about receptors. If you learn about receptors in biology class, good, because they're very important in how the body works. Uh, uh, and these are drugs that interact specifically on what we call mu. Mu is Greek for morphine, the mu opiate receptor. Uh, and there are also some other receptors which are less important, relevant to Suboxone, which has this kappa receptor blockage effect, which adds some additional benefits as far as we prescribe, but we won't talk about that. Uh, and now you, use, you hear the word opiates, and I'm always correcting that term because opiates are only those opioids that are derived from the poppy, the Sumerian joy plant. Uh, so it has to be directly synthesized from that. Uh, and that includes, you can see the list, heroin, codeine, morphine, hydromorphone, uh, uh, which is dilaudid and other drugs uh, that are related to that. And opioids includes that group plus all the synthetics. Uh, and that uh, includes uh, oxycodone, which in an extended release format is oxycontin. Who here has not heard the word oxycontin? Okay. You've not put your head in the sand for the past 10 years. Uh, uh, and uh, fentanyl, I mentioned, methadone is on this list. Tramadol, which is now a widely used drug, is also a synthetic opioid. And buprenorphine, which is the chemical name for Suboxone, which we're using in addiction. So these are all uh, opioids. Uh, and there's a listing of the drugs. So then what is pain then? So pain, by definition, uh, is an unpleasant sensory. It's bad feelings. Anyone in this room not have pain in their life? Well, you've proved the rule. Because if you don't have pain, you have a insensitivity to pain. You don't survive past about 12 or 14. Uh, because pain protects us, our organism, from injuring ourselves. We don't burn our skin because we feel the heat. Pain sensations activate. We also feel cold. We recognize that we have to get away from that. We have a stone in our shoe. We take it out, unless you're a diabetic who has nerve damage and doesn't feel that. And they end up in ulcer, infected, and they get an amputation, perhaps. So pain is an incredible protector. And I'll speak a bit about how important that is. But it also has an emotional component. And it's not surprising at all that our emotions are connected to pain, because when this terrible thing is hap potentially happening to your body, uh, if you don't get kind of 
involved in this in a serious way uh, and take it seriously, like be anxious about it. Uh, for instance, anxiety very, very prevalent with people with pain and the experience of being uh, someone who struggles with pain and has lost a lot of their life and function and family and jobs that often occur with people with chronic pain is commonly uh, seen as depression. And we'll talk just a little bit about uh, uh, adverse childhood events, which include horrible things that people do to their children uh, and other people's children, and adverse community environments, which is the social component. So it's a biological mechanism, a, a psychological response, which is hardwired, uh, and a social and environmental uh, phenomenon. So it is complicated. Uh, Nociception, I mentioned this, does anyone know that term from your biology yet? Nociception is the ending of the nerve that sends a signal in. It just is the input. What we make of it is all the rest. So who we are, how we approach things, how things approach us, the world we grow up in, ultimately leads to uh, our interpretation of that sensation, which is nociception. It's like uh, seeing something, Light simulates the retina. Those are the receptors for, for the uh, photons striking our retina. But what we see is the rest of our brain. Now, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. We don't see beauty. We interpret beauty in our brain. And pain is how we interpret these sensations in our body. Suffering is a response to the diminishment of one's capacity. So the child who doesn't get the toy suffers. If you don't get the double extra credit that was promised here. I was a witness to that uh, for attending here today. Uh, and that means you don't graduate with the honors that you all deserve. Uh, you may suffer a little bit because that means you may not get to the next stage in your life uh, or whatever. So uh, the experience of suffering is when we feel like we're, we're losing who we are, a portion of that. And how important is that in pain when you can't do all the things that you wanted to do in the involvement with friends and family? Uh, and then the behavior is what we see. People show us behavior. So there are a lot of different behaviors. One is crying, one is shrieking, one is threatening us if we don't give them their medications, one is seeking disability. Legitimately, usually it's legitimately, rarely not. Uh, or asking for drugs. That's another behavior that people will show. So this is what pain is. Pain is not simple, which is why I enjoy it because I like to think of things in a complex way. And all right, so pain, I'll go quick history of this. I don't want to get too belated on, on some of these uh, defining topics, but this will help us further along. So if we go way back in time, this drilling holes in people's heads is called trephination. Uh, and this was one of the ways to re relieve the body of evil spirits when people were having pain. Interesting idea. They were working on the head, they recognized that that the experience of pain didn't require a brain uh, and therefore releasing those spirits. Then there were strong religious feelings about what would cause people to have pain and suffering in a, in, with, a, with a just God and how could unjust things happen. Uh, that if we have pain on top of that, uh, there must be some incorrect behavior or other aspect of one's life. Uh, or it became more scientific when we had the four humors of life before modern biology stepped forward. So it was an imbalance of those four humors. And we always invoke being a philosopher, as mentioned, uh, Descartes, <coughs> because he was the first thinker who tried to put pain in the body, 
And this little boy, burning his foot, and this went to his brain. It was a pipe that carried a fluid that delivered the sensation of pain into the brain. The question to often ask is, why is the little boy putting his foot in the fire in the first place? But that's a question for another day. Uh, so here is a, 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 a approximate 15th century manuscript illustration. What's wrong with this picture? OK. All right, so this is a person having danger and damage. He's, but is this warrior experiencing pain? If you asked him, no, because he has something way more important to think about. Is it the glory of the battle, conquering the enemies, how, will, how he will be thought about by his tribe and his community? Uh, or is it just surviving himself? So we have evolved to have systems in our body that reduce the nociception, the signal, to meeting the purpose that we have to have that. Uh, probably the modern version was, was, was published in the, uh, in the medical literature in 1942 by uh, a, an anesthesiologist who was on the battlefront in, the, in Anzio Beach. Again, all these historical references that, Bill, I want you to make note of the fact that I'm paying attention to the history. But uh, he observed that less than half the soldiers who had devastating injuries, I mean, the guts blown out of their body, all these horrible things, limbs, a third never even reported pain. They didn't even ask for drugs. He was so astonished by that that he published a, actually a seminal work. Uh, you can see there's a common belief that wounds are going to hurt, but why do these folks didn't report pain for up to three days later. There's lots of complicated systems. So that's what pain is, because you can have severe injuries without pain. Or you can do the Bloomsday, uh, which is severe injury. Uh, they, the runners don't hurt. Marathoners don't hurt. Combatants don't hurt. And people are doing something so purposeful and so meaningful in their life, the sensations that are entering the body don't seem to hurt. So into the sciences is uh, some great work by, by Karen Davis uh, uh, from Toronto, who's doing a lot of functional MRI imaging and is identifying different brain states that people have. She's a pain research scientist. Uh, and she's uh, uh, characterized at this as salience. So salience means it's important. You need to pay attention. So attention paying. So when we ask people how much does their pain hurt, we raised the intensity of the pain sensation will give them that same sensation because we're calling attention to pain. So the salience network tells us we're paying attention. And then there's the mind-wandering network, which occurs when you're just daydreaming, like a, everyone's looking at me now. But maybe in the next 15 minutes, there'll be daydreamers. And you'll be in the mind-wandering state. Uh, and if you stimulate people with the same sensation in the mind-wandering state, as and the brain just goes in and out of the state, they just lay in a functional MRI and they space out. Uh, and, and every now and then they go into, oh, what, what am I doing, this MRI? And then the rest of the time they're daydreaming. And she's following that. And she gives stimuli to them when they're going in and out of those different brain states. Uh, and when they are in the salient state, they hurt twice as much as when they're in the mind-wandering state. So maybe a little more mind-wandering. We'll get to this in a bit. This is uh, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is one of the ways people get into the, this state. Or yoga, uh, which is associated with getting into a deep, relaxed 
state. Gets your brain out of salience into the state where pain doesn't bother you quite as much. Oops, too far. Okay, so this is a list of uh, adverse childhood events. Are people familiar with this? Is this part? Okay, we get some head nods. Uh, this is incredibly important. Uh, it's also in the news a lot, and it's shockingly uh, prolific in modern society. It has a huge effect on biology. Uh, there's a, the deepest well was just given to me. I can't remember the author's name. The deepest well. Wow. Great job talking uh, quite a bit about all the negative health effects that are associated with being on alert. Pain system tells us we are about to experience danger. If you have emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, uh, family members that are uh, uh, substance abuse users, family member that's incarcerated, these uh, being abandoned, uh, these produce permanent brain states of activation continuous alarm, continuous threat. And we know from work that Bob And has done in the little bar graphs on the right, uh, describe how many of the things on the left are associated with things on the right. And you get points as you go up the scale. So the more points you have, the more of those bad things happen on the back end. And the work we, that uh, our group has been doing at the University of Washington has made an unequivocal correlation between all the questions we ask about pain in our patients and the presence of similar compiled additive events. So I've added chronic pain. It's not on Professor Andrew's list. Uh, he's at uh, uh, Kaiser Permanente in, in uh, uh, San Diego. Uh, it should be on the list, and it's just now entering the list. And it's going to be understandable when we talk a little bit about opiates, why this is important. So when I first uh, invited a, a pain specialist to my practice, I was a primary care doc, sort of a family doc for adults. For many years, I was always interested in pain. I invited this guy in uh, from Pittsburgh to join me in Seattle, and he opened up a box when he was moving into the shared office. We had an out from that box. He pulled one of these tops. Uh, you know, not books, not things to hang on the wall to show how smart he was. He pulled this top out of the box. And I looked at him. Uh, his name was David Sinclair, and I said, David, that's got to have something to do with pain. And he goes, yes. And uh, you know, I said, can I take a guess? He says, of course. Uh, so what the top represents is wind up. This is a child's top. But have you ever seen one of these play with it? Certainly my era, they're still making these now. So you pump these tops, and you get the thing spinning. And if when it starts to wind down, you pump it again. And chronic pain very simply is the top doesn't have to be pumped anymore. And it spins and spins and spins all on its own with all sorts of things that happen in our lives, beginning in childhood to adulthood, all the medical exposures we have to different treatments, uh, all the awful stuff and also the wonderful stuff that can begin to unwind this whole particular process. So when you talk about chronic pain, the injury is not present anymore. Why would it still hurt? It still hurts because the brain never forgets, puts it deep in our recesses, our multiple synapses. I can't remember the number of synapses a second are forming during early childhood. Forming and forming and forming, and what happens in our life reforms it, and we speak English, we speak Spanish, we speak whatever native language. And after about eight or 10, if you learn a new language, you'll always have the original accent because you've burned that into your brain in terms of the memory. 
So pain is the same thing. The experience, the complexity of how this sensation enters our body, the context, what it means, uh, whether it's going to affect my life, cause suffering, are all part of our overall condition. So if we add to the first ACE, the adverse childhood experiences, uh, the adverse community environments, I alluded to that as well. This is coming also out of uh, Anders' group. Uh, if you look at the bottom, we see an awful lot of poverty, discrimination, uh, community disruption, poor housing quality, violence, lack of opportunity. Why is it that opioid problems seem to be present? And these patients report pain. They report it hurts. They feel pain. Their brain, as Karen Davis shows, is activated as if you're poking them. Yet the poking is not happening anymore because these sensations are present. If you do this to yourself right now, would that hurt you? Patients I see in my clinic, they say, stop it, and now it's going to hurt me for three days. And years back, it was that they're making it up. They're not making it up. It's real. A colleague of mine, actually the guy who wrote The Onion, the, the picture, the Lozier onion. So onions are nice. He didn't call it onion, but I took it. I remember a film I saw decades ago uh, about, uh, it was a French film. They're always sort of bizarre. Uh, and they're cooking onions in the kitchen, and they cut the onions, and all the men are weeping, and they're revealing their, their deep insecurities to each other, all in French, and all I supposed to understand French, and I couldn't. But uh, they're going through all this. Uh, and then they start to talk about the longer you cook the onion, what happens to the onion? Becomes sweet. So I, I, I think when you see patients with pain, you listen to them, you spend time to them. Some of our medical students say when they finish their rotation with me, I say, what'd you learn? I went three things you learned. I say, I've already given you the grade. I haven't yet, but I won't change the grade based on what they learned. The first thing they all said was these pain patients are so nice. Now this is a fourth year medical student. Can you, is it, I was so upset. But I heard it again and again and again. This was a consistent. They were so stigmatized, people with pain, that they weren't even considered nice people. So that, to me, actually set me over the top in terms of being able to make a difference and, and allowing this to be recognized. The second thing they learned, uniformly, was the second. And there's something you can do for them. So this is after four years. They thought they weren't nice, and there was, they thought there was nothing you can do. No wonder they didn't want to take care of people with pain. No wonder they were stigmatized. And no, why don't we add now a drug into the mix that has complicated brain effects? And why do you think it's gone bad? So pain is complicated. Uh, this is uh, you know, kind of a list of the domains that we experience. I don't want to belate this. And you can see that it has this biological and psychological and social consequences across the entire experience of an individual. So why does pain hurt? I think it should be obvious. When these things just get chipped off from one's ability, suffering is a diminishment of one's capacity. Look at all these capacities that get diminished in these particular individuals. So I'm actually driving from the airport, I was asked one of, the, uh, what, one of, the, one of my main themes. Uh, I'm going to quote Lorimer Mosley here, and again at the back end, because the guy's brilliant. He's a physical therapist. He lives in Brisbane, Australia. Uh, he's done a lot of great work. Physical therapists, they deal with a lot of pain. He began to realize that the experience of pain in one patient versus another uh, has more to do about what they think is happening than what may actually be happening. Because things that shouldn't hurt, we're hurting people without 
broken bones or dislocated joints. So uh, he picked up, and I want to just promote that pain happens. This is right out of his, his explained pain book. He calls pain a protectometer. It's an interesting, awkward term. You should do a better job with that, but he's entitled to pick the words he wants. So it tells your body that something's wrong. You have to protect yourself. Take that back to the adverse childhood experiences. Take that back to adverse community experiences. Uh, uh, take that back to the, the whole social and psychological envelope that we, that we live in, the environment we live in. Pain happens when there's credible evidence, credible is the key word, that you think there's reasons to believe that danger is greater than the evidence that you're safe. So that's a complicated concept, but it says that your danger alarm is activating it doesn't matter whether anyone else sees it. I've used an analogy that uh, chronic pain, this top that we've, we wind up in people, is like having a car alarm that's broken and it's making horrible shrieking noises. Has anyone had a car alarm go off and they just, oh, I can't believe it's on, that's the middle of the night, it's driving everyone crazy. Uh, in Seattle, a lot of traffic goes by, a truck goes by and it turns off all the car alarms. Uh, uh, so it's a car alarm that's going off without any danger. Nothing, it's just set too high to go off. The threshold for firing is too high. Uh, and that alarm is going off and you're in the car. And you can't turn it off. And not only that, you're the only one who hears it. That's chronic pain. That's the experience that our patients have when they have chronic pain and they're told that there's nothing wrong with it. Go find someone else. You're drug-seeking. You're trying to pursue that. So I'm going to just toss up these. Now this, for those who are not physicians, these are really common conditions that we see in uh, an ordinary medical practice. Uh, these uh, are now called central sensitization syndromes. I'm, I'm mentioning this because they're the most common reasons people see a doctor for pain or a nurse practitioner for pain. And one of the com most common reasons that people are given opioids. And paradoxically, opioids make each one of these things worse when they're exposed to that. So we've got people on drugs that make the process worse, and we've been raising the dose of the drugs, attempting to achieve better control, and we've made them worse and worse and worse. That's the first epidemic, the epidemic of poor pain care, not recognizing it. This work was originally conceived in 1995, which seems like uh, not that many years ago for me, but to many of you in the audience, uh, I suspect that seems like an impossibly old historic age. But uh, in 1995, we didn't recognize any of this. And this was my aha moment listening to a lecture that, uh, that uh, uh, Muhammad Yunus, a rheumatologist, because he talked about fibromyalgia. But all these other conditions we couldn't understand, and we're doing awful things, doing surgeries when there was no organ. Well, let me just take out that organ because it seems to hurt, and there would be pain still at the site of the organ, chronic pelvic pain syndrome. The bladder would hurt and there'd be no infection, interstitial cystitis. The jaw would hurt. People would come in and have jaw pain and there may be a little thing off with the way the jaw moved and two or three, five surgeries, then the whole jaw would be replaced and then the other jaw would be replaced. And I look back in my practice and I actually remember four or five patients and they were clearly traumatized in their early life. They, let me in on their secret just a little bit, and I didn't even realize that that was the problem, that they had post-traumatic stress disorder from an adverse childhood event. And here we are giving them opioids, including myself. I didn't get 
crazy on the dosing. I could see it wasn't working, giving him sedative drugs. So the treatment by a poet, Maudsley, uh, quite a number of years back, the sorrow which has no vent in tears may make other organs weep. I thought that was exactly what we're experiencing in these conditions because that post-traumatic stress syndrome, the depression and the anxiety, so drive the experience of pain. And not only that, they drive how we prescribe for it. So if you look at the opioid doses in population, this was work done by several of my colleagues and, and replicated across the country, that the higher the dose of opiates that people are taking to manage their pain, the higher the likelihood they have depression, anxiety, childhood abuse, lifetime suicide attempts, alcohol use disorder, and are on benzodiazepines, Valium and Xanax and Clonopin, all those drugs that are never intended to be used long-term anyhow. And so there's a distinct increase, it's a linear increase in the number of, of these adverse conditions. So we're selecting the worst patients in terms of the condition, the worst emotional background, the worst not the patient, that the experience they had is the worst, uh, and we're giving them the highest risk drugs. Now, why didn't that work out? Why didn't that work out? It obviously didn't work out because it, we had good intentions, me included, uh, but no science to support that. So let me just jump over to the addiction side of the equation right now. So what is drug addiction? It's a chronic relapsing brain disease. So it is a disease. It's not an absence of will or spiritual deficiency. It is a brain disease. You have to be exposed to it. It's sort of like if you won't get the flu unless you're exposed to it. Uh, so you get exposed to a substance. There's some predisposition based on family history. There's a lot of predisposition based on early life experiences. Uh, characterized by inability to control use. These are the three C's. A craving for that exposure, unrelated to any requirement to, to take that uh, agent. Uh, it could be gambling. It could be sex addiction. It could be addiction to Tootsie Roll lollipops, like a patient of mine once told me. I mean, she got hooked on everything, and she said, you know, Dr. Talbot, I would get hooked on Tootsie Roll lollipops if you gave me a supply of those. These are the mind-opening experiences when you listen to your patients. They really teach you everything. So, and it's also compulsive. You have to do it. There's an event. Every time I do this, I have to get high. Every time I do that, I have to do this. So it's loss of control, craving, and, and uh, compulsive use despite adverse consequences. So bad things are happening as a result of it. That's the addiction. It's a brain disease because the drugs change the structure of the brain, the anatomy and the chemical interactions in that brain. So it has pathoanatomic uh, and physiological uh, abnormalities as, as related to that. And the pain and the addiction systems overlap in several ways, particularly when you talk about opioids because opioids initially get people high. And after a while, they stop. And after a while, they just keep you feeling normal. And after a while, they can't even get you to feel normal again. That leads to the dose escalation in addiction. And that's tolerance to the drug. You get tolerant to the effect. Same thing happened with opiates in patients who, for whom we're using them for pain. Because initially, they knock people out, uh, get sleepy. They may even get pain relief. But after a while, as, a, as the body gets tolerant, just like the euphoria, the ability to actually feel normal again gets taken away. And when the dose is too low, they actually hurt. They don't hurt because of the injury. They hurt that the body no longer has the 
natural ability to manage pain without the exposure to this drug. So when you withdraw the drug from patients, their pain gets worse, and that's part of the problem that we're now facing. And when you're dealing with patients with chronic pain, you, and you've been prescribing opiates for them, you can't even tell whether they're addicted or not, because we don't even have a tool. One of you may discover this, be able to identify, like the DSM-5, which is how we measure addiction. There's a, a whole bunch of categories. You check the boxes. You, you get a diagnostic and statistical manual. Number five uh, will tell you how you make the diagnosis. We do not have a DSM-5 for chronic opioid use that was prescribed for the purpose of pain relief. So people are getting lumped into being called addicts when they've done everything right. They've no, they haven't lost any prescriptions. They don't go to emergency rooms for extra refills. They don't uh, run out early and need, uh, need those refills. Uh, uh, there's no request that you ever increase their dose. When you check their urine drug testing uh, on them, there's no bad drugs in the urine that we, we, we can find. Uh, and they're not shopping around uh, with multiple prescribers in order to trick you into being, giving them a drug that's high. So they've done everything exactly right, and yet they're being called addicts, partly because we don't understand. Just like we didn't understand Mohamed Yunus's work that all these conditions are made worse by opioids, that the diseases of the heart ultimately, uh, and, and the broad suffering that occurs. But this is the problem we right now. This is a huge ethical conundrum. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, the other one, let me back up a second here in this. Well, maybe for the sake of time, I won't. But on the left, I briefly showed you the drugs that we uh, use for pain. They're about 30% effective at most. We don't cure pain at most 30% effective. In fact, opioids turn out to be counter-effective over time with exposure. But if you look on the right there, what we, what we can see in terms of the best science we've got right now, that mindfulness, CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what are your negative thoughts about this sensation? Is this really a negative thought about the sensation? What is the behavior you have in a response? Look, link the thought, the negative thought, with the negative behavior and try to find different thoughts and different behaviors. It's a training technique in psychology and mindfulness. Nearly 50% reduction in pain. We do not have a drug that potent short of general anesthesia or a local anesthetic, which provides total anesthesia, that is that effective as working the brain. And I keep to the audience as I present this, I'm waiting for the first case of an overdose of mindfulness. You got my phone number. Call me. I want to be the first one to report an overdose of mindfulness because we certainly have a, a, an underrepresentation of, of people being able to be comfortable in their own bodies. Uh, uh, you can read the list. Acupuncture, uh, just sleeping better. How many of you people in this room slept be between 10 and 12 hours last night? Okay. That was the normal sleep time before Thomas Edison invented the electric light bulb. That's how we were evolved. If you sleep five hours or less, your pain system is going to be twice as bad. It's going to be overreactive because that it's really bad not to sleep. Our body restores itself. So getting a good night's sleep is perhaps the most effective treatment you could give for people with pain. And yet pain interrupts. It continuously says something's wrong, something's bad, there's an alarm. You cannot sleep through pain. So uh, it's a very, very difficult challenge. Hypnosis, manual therapies, yoga, tai chi, there's basically so little work being done on these areas historically that we're now finally coming back uh, to taking a look at how, the, how some of these other treatments actually work. So back to history. 
1999, I was part of the committee that determined you didn't have to be dying of cancer to get opioids for your pain because the restrictions for opioids were so severe, uh, you could only use them effectively in a hospital. And if you prescribed even a tiny codeine outside of the realm of that circumstance, uh, you would be risking sanctions for breaking the law because it was so heavily prohibited. There was a series of what were called intractable pain laws that swept the country that allowed physicians to prescribe opioids, interestingly, independent of quantity, dose, or frequency. Just give as much as it takes to control the pain, and we won't come after you, as far as legislative authority. And this opened the floodgates, because these are just some stats to see what a powerful unintended consequence this humanitarian, a benevolent, uh, uh, compassionate effort to take care of pain led to. Basically, every American has a full bottle of oxycodone in their medicine chest equivalents. Now, you may not. If you have it in your medicine chest right now, you ought to get rid of it because it's going to end up in the population because it has big sale value as well. In fact, 80% of the drugs that are prescribed after surgery are not used. They don't use them. So the reservoir of opiates in this country is enough that most patients after a joint replacement surgery, you get old like me and a few, rarely a few others here, your knees start going bad, you may need a knee joint out, and they give you 100 pills, and you need two. Uh, uh, third molar extractions in dental. That's the number one reason young people get exposed to opioids and is a major contributor to later opioid addiction. Uh, they get 50, typical ordering for that, and they would take one. That means 49 pills are left over, 49 pills sit around and get shared, distributed, oh, you have this or that, well, well, well intended, or they get sold or they get stolen. So this is the bottom, on, the, on your right, you can see the uh, national prescribing levels. You see that we Americans cannot manage without taking opioids when we have any kind of negative sensation. A negative sensation, I got to take opiates to get away from it. It's a problem. Uh, and and uh, this pain care created so overly reliant on opiates and not reliant on the things that we knew back in 1980 when I did a training in the original pain clinic at the University of Washington. We took people off their drugs. And we taught them behavioral strategies. We taught them how to get back to work. We, we taught them how to have better relationships with their family. We did all the right stuff, and they got better. But there was no funding for that because it was really expensive to sit and talk with people because reimbursements only paid for things that you do to people, not that people do for themselves. So it was a terrible mistake. And you can see uh, the, you know, some of the data. 16,000 people die from prescription drug overdoses, 500,000, half a million people show up in emergency departments. What an amazing expense. In fact, pain care is well over $650 billion, billion a year, over half a trillion. And that doesn't count children, it doesn't count veterans, and it doesn't count uh, older patients who are in uh, convalescent homes and retirement settings. So it is a trillion dollars on pain. And if you do it right, we could save half a trillion dollars and just think of all the good things we could do with that instead. Uh, and it is now, the prescription opiate uh, epidemic is the third largest epidemic in American history. The influenza pandemic, 1918, 
than the HIV epidemic. We far surpassed that. Uh, and now, uh, in terms of the number per year, that was a peak number of deaths in the AIDS epidemic. More people have uh, died of opioid overdoses than the Vietnam War, speaking of Vietnam War casualties. So it is a, uh, a tremendous amount, up to 2017, I updated that's the latest data I could have. Uh, we're talking about 218,000 have died of prescription. This doesn't count heroin, illegal fentanyl, and, and all the other opioids. So I was, it was mentioned I was involved in the mid-2000s uh, in making a turnaround in, in what we're doing in Washington State. So you can see we introduced rules. Actually, we introduced guidelines. They were educational guidelines. Then we turned them into practice guidelines uh, for the agencies that were involved. This is workers' comp and the public in, uh, employee benefits program. Uh, and then a law came into effect in 2010 in this state. So this is prescription drugs. And to our credit here in the state of Washington, we're the first in the country to do this. Uh, and we continue to lead in this area. But it has been a slog because of the illegal drug problem. So you can see uh, the top is any opioid. The curve is still going up. The purple is the dent we made. We're only one small state compared to the rest. Uh, and the rest of the country has been dragging their feet on, on managing that. So that's a purple line. The blue is heroin, and the orange is fentanyl, uh, predominantly, the illegal fentanyl that took off. Uh, and these are now conflated. So we have cannot tell the difference. And in fact, uh, a public health journal, American Journal of Public Health, excellent uh, review just last year, identified that we don't even have clear understanding of what we're measuring. So we're putting guidelines and rules in effect that are reducing the prescriptions. And meanwhile, there's a spiking addiction management. And the way you treat pain and the way you treat addiction are completely different. And so the rules and the guidelines and the laws that are coming out right now are completely confused. We don't know apples from origins. And, and it's become a very important debate. And in the past couple of months, there's quite a bit of literature. So we're at a paradigm shift. The risks and benefits, the data uh, uh, was self-evident uh, by uh, 2015 that opioids have more harm and benefit, and we don't treat people with something that's going to make them worse, uh, so worse that they may die of an overdose on that, so worse that all those diseases of the heart begin to be embedded in our, in our body parts that we can't distinguish which ones are, are present or not. Uh, so their conclusion, evidence is insufficient to determine effectiveness of long-term therapy, uh, and there's an overwhelming evidence of harm. And that set off this point of equilibrium. Uh, and the current issues we now have in, in clinical practice are we now need to know why are we prescribing them? What is the action? Just because it hurts doesn't mean you get an opioid. How much do you give? What dose? And how long do you give it? These are questions that we are only now, believe it or not, just recognizing that we have to do. So the guidelines and rules are now requiring us to identify indications, to talk about duration. Uh, uh, and, and, and dose. Uh, we also need to identify these risks. It was presumed, based on a letter to the editor in the New England Journal uh, by Porter and Jicks, uh, it was this long, I mean literally a tiny little letter, observed in hospital patients at Mass General, and they looked at the discharge records, 
They had a, a new diagnosis of addiction before they came to the hospital and looked at all the opiates were given and he said less than 1% of patients who were in that hospital who were exposed to opiates became addicted. That became the rule. You can't get people addicted to opiates if it's for pain. It wasn't even science. He actually later said, I wish I had never published that because I'm, he felt personally responsible for giving us the excuse, us meaning all the clinicians out there trying to relieve pain, but for not recognizing that there's high risks. And then we need to measure and track outcomes. So you are getting your outcomes measured and tracked, right? You get grades at the end of the year, you get your GPA and that's measuring and tracking. We should be doing this when we give someone a treatment. Did, did, the, did the antibiotic reduce the fever? Yes. We were not even measuring. We were asking the patient how much it hurt. And we now know that when you ask someone how much it hurt, it's going to hurt more. So we were measuring the complete wrong thing. So we need to measure them and we need to track them. And we also need now to be able to care for the patients who we have iatrogenically, meaning caused by our best of intentions and absent of evidence, ability to continue to care for those people because they are getting abandoned because of this stigma. Not only do you have pain, who wants to deal with you? Uh, and now you're taking opioids. I don't want to deal with you because of lots of fears that individuals have. So the CDC came up with a nice little graphic. I, I just put this up here because uh, it's a way to communicate to the general public as well as uh, uh, physicians. The problem is too many prescriptions. The solution is fewer prescriptions. It's pretty simple. Uh, and uh, the too many days, you need to give for fewer days. Uh, the problem is we're giving too high a dose. We need to lower doses. Those are the rules. All the rules and guidelines you see. Just go back. It's pretty simple. I can't go back with it. But, so if it's, if it's too many days, too high a dose, you just lower that. And that's what the rules are intending to say. This is what we now know. Uh, so there's this pesky, one of the guidelines, this is guideline seven. This is what I spend most of my time talking about professional audiences with. Uh, and I highlight in the bottom uh, that we're, we are supposed to work with patients to taper their opioids if they're not helping. You can read the fine print and you're supposed to start at the beginning, you're supposed to manage it. Uh, and the problem with this is that tapering opioids is really hard. One of our colleagues, Jane Ballantyne, sat on the committee. I, we spent hours, hours talking about the, this whole issue of tapering patients because we started with the first tapering at a statewide level here, and it was really hard. So these are her words. It's challenging, not judgmental. We have to have an opportunity to reevaluate with the patient. We have to be empathic. We need to work with the patient. It's you know, called patient-centered care, where we get them involved in the decision-making. We, we can go really, really, really slow, and you could pause when the person's not ready for it. And then, most importantly, what we were observing when we were taking opiates away, reducing them, even at these slow rates, we were unmasking the anxiety, the depression, the post-traumatic stress disorder, and the development of opiate use disorder in this population. So we now have a syndemic. We've got bad pain care, no tools to manage it. And we've got all these, there's probably 10 million people in this country that are housed. This is a huge, huge population problem that's involved. Uh, in Washington State, this is the hot topic right now. I'll be talking tomorrow at the uh, medical school a bunch about this. This bill just popped up, uh, extended Senate House Bill 1427, uh, rules to govern the prescribing of opiates in the treatment of pain. Now, can you get any 
broader a topic. They slip this in on the back end of a bill. If you're going to go into government, that's the way you do it. You get all the experts come in. At the last minute, you slip it in, and the bill passes. Uh, uh, and what? We're going to make rules about acute pain and post-surgical pain. So all this has frightened the dickens out of physicians and nurse practitioners. Nurse practitioners do prescribe opiates as well. They fear losing their licenses because guidelines and rules seem daunting. They're disruptive to what we're used to doing. And the health systems that we work in don't give us the tools to do any of the things that we're being asked to do. We don't have the measurement tools. We don't have the tracking tools. We don't have the direct electronic connection to the prescription monitoring program. There's, it, we're like, OK, yeah, we believe it, but let us do it. So they're freaking out. You know what? They have a cause. Uh, but the, we also have a higher purpose here, which is to fix the problem. The patient fears that they're going to have uncontrollable pain or that the taper is going to be forced, that they're going to be abandoned. All these are actually real concerns. They are happening now. And they don't have access to CBT, to physical therapy, to mindfulness, to yoga, tai chi. They don't have any money. They can't, these people can't even pay their current bills. Now they're asking them to get in their car and spend gas money to visit a therapist. And the therapists aren't trained because just as pain is stigmatized for our medical students, it's stigmatized for psychology students, it's stigmatized for physical therapy students, because they think that these people are awful people and that there's nothing you can do for them. It's the exact same problem. We go to the medical society, uh, excuse me, pain society meetings, and we have all the other professions there. It's really great. We actually do work together as a team. Uh, and in that context, uh, there's just like a handful of psychologists and a handful of physical therapists. And they say, no one wants to go into these specialties because the patients are awful, usually because they don't have insurance, so they can't make a living on it. Uh, and there's nothing you can do for it because they were never trained how to do it. That's why I'll be at the medical school tomorrow working with our future physicians to understand uh, what pain is and how to treat it. And then the public health fears are just, in terms of the addiction, just one in 10 people with documented, diagnosed opiate disorder have access to care. So 90% of the people who we say, yes, you've got the, you're addicted to uh, opioids, good luck. It's a public health problem as well. So the irony is that most patients, when they taper off, a nice study done by one of my colleagues, most patients feel better. The key term, I'm not a zombie anymore. The significant other says, my husband, my wife, my mother, my child, my partner is not a zombie anymore. That was the number one term that we used. Uh, that was not part of our assessment. We just had uh, interviews on the way out. I don't feel like a zombie because you're giving a general anesthetic, an opioid. We use opioids in the operating room. I'm, an, I'm not an anesthesiologist, but my colleagues are pushing all these opioids. Remy fentanyl, they get fentanyl in the OR, they get all sorts of opioids, and they give benzodiazepines as sedatives. These are drugs that are to be administered in an in-hospital setting with someone to regulate your breathing during that time. And we're giving it to people in the wild at doses that are just below the level of anesthesia, but just enough to remove all their humanity. Because opiates shut down our oxytocin levels, which is the bonding hormone. They shut down our, our steroid levels, which give us energy and a boost. Uh, they, they interact with every single circuit in our system that represents who we are as people. And we're giving these people these crazy high doses. And when you remove the drug, they actually feel better. Uh, the pain is not worse, but it is less bothersome. So if you ask them how many, yeah, it's a 10 out of 10, but it doesn't bother anymore because that's because they're back in life. And they have 
meaning and purpose and things that they live for and goals that they can achieve and social connections with them around them. That's how we treat pain. We don't anesthetize our patients, which is what we've been doing. So the big ethical question here, and I'm nearing out of time, uh, is, is it ethical to force someone to reduce a drug if you think you're harming them? It's a good question. We could maybe have some discussions about that. Is it ethical for me to prescribe a drug for someone when I know I'm risking more risks than benefits? Can a forced taper ever be compassionate? We're told to be compassionate about this. We want to be compassionate. We don't go into this. We sh none of, no physician really ever, I think, intends to go in to be an awful clinician, but compassion matters. But it provokes fear, anxiety, depression, suicidality, and the use of drugs if we force this on our patients. So it is a conundrum. And the term is that uh, by uh, uh, Stefan Kersetz, who's worked in the VA, He's been a big outspoken uh, proponent of us taking a second look because he says the CDC guidelines, Centers for Disease Control guidelines, have been weaponized. And they've been weaponized. This just was in this weekend's newspaper. This is a slide hot off the press here. When the cure is worse than the disease, uh, and uh, this is a quote in an effort to reduce opiate addiction, doctors are cutting back on pain medication and leaving patients to suffer. Uh, and here, uh, this, uh, the government solution to the opioid crisis feels like a war to pain patients. Uh, and there's an anecdote, this woman lost her husband. Turns out that Kersetz's group on the left, and I don't know if it's big enough to read there, the strongest predictors of thinking, of none, actually none, in this study, not a single, there are hundreds of veterans who were, not a single one suicide. But the ones who thought of suicide or actually did self-harm in, in response to feeling despair, actually had predis predisposed uh, uh, major depression. Uh, and the pain, the diagnosis of the severity of pain had nothing to do with it. So that it, they have been weaponized because we're forgetting that in the back end of all this is this person, fellow human, that we're trying to do the best job we can. And it has indeed been weaponized. So, uh, so there's also a political issue. This is Keith Wiloop. Uh, I didn't realize my host was a historian because I didn't read your bio before I got on the plane here today. I apologize. Uh, but uh, he's a, a Princeton historian, and he wrote uh, uh, a, a wonderful book uh, on the politics of pain, uh, a pain of political history. Uh, and he spoke uh, at, the, at a university, and I was just blown away because he talks about deserving care. Who deserves care in this country? Who deserves care? Is it based on the color of your skin? your socioeconomic status, your ethnicity, whether you speak the proper language. We make decisions about who deserves care based on our whole political construct. And, and he identifies it in sickle cell disease because there can be nothing worse than having a horrible pain syndrome. It's like you're, you're, you're starving all your organs of blood by the sickling of that. It is truly as bad as pain can get. It's like someone coring into your bone marrow on a regular basis and being black because that means you're drug seeking and you don't deserve care. So it's a huge problem that he's identified that would be interesting. So uh, pain of political history would be worth someone's reading. He talks about the introduction of uh, the, the Veterans Administration system and Social Security and all the politics that were associated with us deciding 
uh, who deserves care. So back to uh, Lord Mosley and his colleague uh, David Butler. So what should you do? My closing remarks. So when you, he gave up. These guys gave up on teaching doctors. They said they're not willing to learn. They're going to do things the same way they've always done it. I don't think we're that bad, but they went ahead. They're Australian, so they take the big bite of, of things. Uh, uh, and he decided, to go, let's go to the patients. Let's tell them what they need to ask their doctors. And the doctors are going to have to learn how to answer the questions. That was very clever. Uh, and so uh, uh, there's his book, The Sensitive Nervous System. That's Butler. He's a, uh, he's a doctor of education and an illustrator. So he's been a real contributor to the way for us to communicate to patients. So is my pain detection system broken? Question one. How can I fix it? Three, will I hurt myself by doing that? Three simple questions. And each one is loaded. The way they sorted that out, he told me they got a, uh, hired a very expensive PR company, and they, they said, we don't want to hear you doctors and experts. We're going to just talk to the public. And they generated this from multiple public uh, uh, discussions and uh, market-based uh, research and identified these were the three things that dialed in. Is it broken? Can I fix it? Am I going to hurt myself doing it? And their goal uh, is to educate the public. It is no longer acceptable that pain be just managed. We must accept that it can be treated, and sufferers can alter it themselves through education. So you have to spread the word on this. OK, I'm going to close now with a remark attributed to Voltaire. He actually didn't say this. It's one of the greatest lines, because it applies today. Uh, it's what, you know, the, 1850 was attributed to him. Doctors pour drugs of which they know little, and that's very, very true still, uh, for diseases of which they know less, into patients of which they know nothing at all, because we don't spend the time to know who they are and what their lives are like. I think this is absolutely true. Francis Peabody, uh, at the turn of the last century, the secret of the care for the patient is in caring for the patient. And I'm putting this up to this audience because we have to remind our people, our other uh, prescribers, that we have to ultimately care about a patient. That's how we can be compassionate in their overall management. And my mentor, who came up with the onion, uh, John Lozier, has said, chronic pain is not a state of opioid deficiency. Thanks, thanks very much. Appreciate your attention. And it is indeed a Sisyphusian challenge <laughs> to accomplish what we're trying to do. So, uh, Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate everybody's time. I know it's a little late. You guys don't even go to bed till like 1 in the morning anyway. Yeah. So, uh, um, Not tonight. They're going to get there 12 hours tonight. Right? Yeah, that's right. Um, we have time. I, I know he said he'd stay afterwards, but I think we have time for a couple questions if people are interested. I know you're thinking some really interesting things that you want to ask. So yes. there's a question up here. Excellent. Well, help me thank Dr. Talbot again for coming tonight. We appreciate it. Thank you. And thank well, you all, thank you all for, for hanging out. Coming out. Great effort. Yeah. We really appreciate yeah. it. So have a great night. Be safe going home, whether that's 20 feet or 20 miles.